The following message is entitled, Super Joy's Battlefield of Suffering, Part 2. This message was given during the evening service on June 5, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Tonight, after a few Sunday nights where we went off a field and off the road, we're back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, and the sermon title is Super Joy's Battlefield of Suffering, Part 2. And I start with somewhat of an odd Civil War historical fact, so to speak. I've entitled this historical incident as Civil War Soused. There's an old expression in the South, even today, that describes someone who's extremely intoxicated, which is what soused means. In case you didn't know, to be soused is to be drunk or intoxicated. The phrase that's used down south in our country is this, Hayes as drunk as Cooter Brown. Cooter! Drunk as Cooter Brown. Of course, I ask myself, who on earth is Cooter Brown? Well, it's somewhat murky history of the Deep South, but it seems to have some support. Cooter lived right along the Mason-Dixon line when the Civil War broke out in 1861. He was a good old boy. He had family in the North and had family in the South. And you know the Mason-Dixon line was the dividing line. He didn't want to take a side, north or south, nor did he want to fight for either side. He was called up for dra- by the draft board, so Cooter supposedly got drunk as a skunk and staggered into the draft board, and they kicked him out. As he staggered out, he thereinafter, day after day, realized if he stayed soused like the louse that he was, he wouldn't have to serve, and he was right. He was a louse who got soused for four straight years to the end of the war in 1865 to keep himself off the battlefield. Had a boy, Cooter. Rather than go to war, he just stayed permanently drunk for four years. That's one way to stay off the battlefield for sure. I doubt he lived much longer than the Civil War, however, as Cooter the South had a liver quite doused. By Southern comfort, no doubt, he was fine. He poured it nonstop down the hatch till he dropped, avoiding the blue and the gray all the time. But Cooter one day woke up in a field in the middle of a battle royale. Shelling was deadly and the hangover quite real. It was the last time he drank for a while. We Americans are experts at avoiding conflict, just like Cooter. Drank his way out of a civil war. How many Americans are doing that on the bottle today? Bottle has to be up near the top for getting one off the battlefields of life, I think, in our culture. It's got to be way up near the top. But we don't just dip into the bottle to avoid conflict in the United States. Here's my Hall of Fame top ten list of ways to avoid conflict and suffering in this culture. If you care to write them down, I don't see what the point is. 
Everyone loves top 10 lists, so I've got my own. Number one, booze and drugs, obviously. Number two, sleep. People like to sleep their way out of suffering, especially if they're depressed. Number three, suicide. Number four, quitting one's job and going on welfare. That's not happening at all since the plague, huh? No. Number five, divorce. Hey, if you're suffering in a relationship, unload that turkey. Number six, lying. Lying your way out of conflict. That's a big one today. Number seven, gambling and entertainment. Just get lost in the fun. Avoid the suffering. Number eight, hey, if you don't like your neighbors or the neighborhood, what should you do? Avoid conflict. Move away. And number nine, I knew someone years ago that attended the church that used this one. By choice, just become deaf. You don't hear any of the conflict around you. He just turned off his hearing aid. Every Sunday for years, he'd sit right there, and the minute I stood up to preach, turned off the sound. It's a great way not to get convicted from sermons. But my favorite is number 10 in my top 10 list. The way to avoid the battlefield of suffering and conflict is just think positively. <laughs> As I've mentioned in another sermon months and months ago, that's pretty raunchy, not morally raunchy, but horrific lyrics of a country western song by David Lee Murphy in his best-selling album. The entire gist of the album is everything's going to be all right. Sure. Sure, David Lee, you say so. In your note sheet, suffering is part of the human condition because all suffering is sourced somewhere in sin. Suffering is part of the human condition because all suffering is sourced somewhere in sin. Sorry, David Lee Murphy, everything is not going to be all right. All suffering is sourced somewhere in sin. Number two, sin wrecks everything we, write this list down, everything we see, touch, love, hate, think on, relate to, and desire. Sin wrecks everything we see, touch, love, hate, think on, relate to, and desire. Then throw in the mix Satan wreaking havoc. Throw into the mix the fallenness of creation. And let's not forget a wrath-filled God. And this world is wrecked. Number three, it's even worse for the believer, for we chose to be on Christ's side at conversion. It's even worse for the believer, for we chose to be on Christ's side at conversion. I didn't know this at age five, but maybe you did. Maybe somebody wisely told you at conversion. You just changed sides in the army. 
You went from being in the world and Satan's side to being in Christ's side. You just made yourself an enemy by being saved at that moment. You're an enemy to the world and to Satan. Under number three, these enemies are permanently arrayed against us. Are we believers really then that foolish to think we can avoid suffering? Well, we certainly seem to act like it, as we've talked about in previous sermons. We, just like the lost, divorce if our spouse does us wrong. We believers, just like the lost, move if our neighborhood goes bad. We, just like the lost, quit our jobs if we don't like the boss or our fellow employees. And we find upstanding Christians leave our churches, present company excluded, leave our churches when accurate Bible preaching hits a little too close to home. Evangelicalism right now has a track record of running good teachers out and leaving bad ones in. What does that tell us? We don't want conviction. That's why if you hold in 1 Peter 1 and go to 2 Timothy 4 to remind you what I've shown you many times before, we so desperately want to avoid suffering that before the rapture, so-called Christians don't want to suffer at church. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, we're called to preach the word continuously, in season and out of season, not referring, as I've told you many times, to summer, fall, winter, spring. It's referring to in season popular in the church and in season and out of season not popular. That's in the church, not society. We preach the word in the church. This is prophecy, verse 2, telling us that preaching, Bible preaching, is going to be out of season. And it is, prophetically, mentioned in verse 3. For the time will come. This is a description of out of season preaching churches. Verse 3. The time will come when they will not, they, professed believers, not unbelievers, will not endure sound doctrine. There it is. We do not want churches that convict with sound doctrine. We want suffering to end in church, just like in the rest of our lives. We want, in verse 3, to have ears tickled. We being professed believers, not we in this church right here, that I'm speaking to around Zoom. I'm referring to the prophetical end of the church age. They will accumulate to heap up in piles. Episarao to accumulate, pile for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And notice, they turn away their ears from the truth. So they don't want. So this is what I'm talking about. Evangelical today, evangelicalism and fundamentalism today is running out Bible teachers like myself in verse 4. They turn away and they don't come back. And they turn aside to myths and false teachings and things that make us lustfully feel good in verse 3. That's the state of the church today. That's what the Lord will return to judge. That's why when we go back to 1 Peter 1, this is really a series only 
for the very few professed believers who are godly. There's Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. In this you greatly rejoice, super joy. There's Peter 1, 6. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Super joy in the battlefield of suffering. Only a godly Christian subscribes to this. Only a godly Christian. Most professed believers will not. We fight and we kick against suffering in our lives. And we need all suffering explained. Job never got an explanation. Why should we? God is not in the business of informing us why we're going through what we're going through. He says, of course, just to rejoice greatly when you do. Various trials, as we will see in verse 6 down the road, all types, all shapes, all sizes, they're not fun. Suffering for the faith, suffering in this life, can very easily wreck our joy. But the godly believer accepts the reality and lives not for the suffering world, but for the next life in heaven. And godly believers aren't Cooter Browns avoiding a battlefield through booze or avoiding any other suffering. The godly believer says, let it come. The godly believer realizes that the more he lives for Christ, the worse it's going to be for him. The godly believer is not into avoiding the battlefield the bottle or anything else, but accepts the calling of God and the word of God to go to war for Christ. But here in verse 6, the godly believer doesn't just accept suffering. He lives in a realm of super joy while suffering, as the sermon title says. Let's review where we've been at in the outline. Verse 6, Christians are to be joyful despite trials. That's Roman numeral 1. Christians are to be joyful despite trials. Letter A underneath that. The Christian's joy is supposed to be connected to a salvation, not good times. It says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. The this, as we have seen, is our conversion testimony, verses 3 to 5. Born again, verse 3. Secured in heaven, verse 4. Power of protection, verse 5. In this, verse 6, we greatly rejoice. Not to rejoice over the agonies of suffering. We accept them. We rejoice in Christ is in control. And we rejoice in our salvation. Under letter A, point number one, that's the context of joy, super joy, in this. What's the nature of this Christian joy? Write it down on the blank lines. It is super joy. Agaliathste, as you would pronounce the Greek word for Greatly rejoice. One word in the Greek, agaliathste, it means super joy. It means mega joy. It means over the top. This is where we start to drop off the map. The Google map of joy, for most believers, doesn't have this one. As the roadmap of our lives takes us through suffering, we disappear. The spiritual GPS doesn't work for us. We can't find the road of super joy. And Peter's not telling us how to get it. He's just telling us what we're to rejoice in. Our salvation and Jesus Christ. 
So we finished perspective number one a few Sunday nights ago in your note sheet. Joy is super confidence in our protected salvation and protecting Savior. Joy is super confidence in our protected salvation and protecting Savior. In this, you greatly rejoice. Letter B, the next phrase in verse 6, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. All sorts of trials. Big trials, little trials, long trials, short trials. Trials for the faith. Trials just living on this nasty planet. But predominantly, the context is referring to trials as Christians, implying suffering for the faith. Puritan Thomas Watson said many centuries ago, quote, Affliction is for our profit. It should make us submit to God and say your will be done. There is a kindness in affliction in that your case is not as bad as others or not so bad that it couldn't be worse. When it is dusk, it could get darker. God gives gracious support in affliction. If he strikes with one hand, he supports with the other. Without God's support, we would sink under our trials. Christ buries the heaviest part of the cross. End quote. Now Peter gives us, as your note sheet says under letter B, four marks of Christian suffering. It doesn't tell us how to get joy in suffering. The reality is you're going to suffer. I think if we could just accept that reality, we wouldn't be caught off guard so much. The reason we're caught off guard so much is we don't think we should be suffering. We say things like, I thought I was getting my whole act together, everything was fine, things were going good, and then I got waylaid, I got whacked upside the head. The Civil War came along, Kudo could say, and I wasn't prepared. That's just outright wrong thinking. We are going to suffer. And he's not telling us the steps to being greatly rejoicing. He just tells us what to rejoice in. Because someone could say, okay, I'm to rejoice in my salvation and in Jesus Christ. But I'm not. My suffering is too great and too hard and too difficult and too confusing. I can't look back at my salvation and I'm not rejoicing in Jesus. I'm telling the truth. I'm just not doing it. How do I do this, Peter? He's not telling you. It's assumed that believers will do this. If we're growing, we will. If you need to know how to find such joy, you've got to go back to another book, Galatians 5, which we've returned to many times and we won't do tonight. You have to walk by the Spirit. No joy and suffering, no walking by the Spirit. That's foundational to your Christian life and mine. If we're not walking by the Spirit, we're missing the entire golf course of playing on the field of Christianity is just, I mean, we're missing everything if we're not walking by the Spirit. What he gives us now is four marks. Mark number one is in your note sheet. I typed it in for you. Christian trials are temporary. It says there to begin with in verse 6, 1 Peter 1, 
even though now for a little while. What does he mean by that? What does Peter mean when he says, for a little while? What short while? We have a couple options. Little letter A at the bottom of the note sheet. He could be referring to our lives are but a vapor. So a short while can refer to the short length of every believer's life compared to eternal life. Go back to James 4. James said this. James 4. Talking to secularized Jewish believers in verse 13. James is really just the blunt apostle who just lets us have it. He doesn't have time to mess around. James 4 is incredible. This is just in-your-face teaching from the Holy Spirit through James. I mean, look at verse 1. All right, let me get at it. You Christians, what's the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? I'll tell you. I'll tell you right in your face. Pleasures wage and warn your members. You're lusting. He's talking to believers, verse 2. You're just lusters. Mega-lusters. You're committing murder in your heart. You're envious. Can't obtain. Fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. Prayer life is shot. You think I'm bad. Aren't you glad that James isn't in this pulpit? I'll be ducking under the pews. Crawling out on our hands and knees. Stop, stop. I've heard enough. I mean, it's just, it just is just one volley. Howitzer volley after another. Verse 4, you adulteresses. Friendship with the world. You hate God. He's talking to believers. He gets a little more refined in verse 13. Skip down there, James 4, 13. Come now, you who say, so he's like this, stroking his Jewish goatee. Come now, you who say. Oh, he's going to let up on us then. Thank you. I got a breath of fresh air. James is going to let up. He's been shooting us with both barrels. No. Today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. This is so true of believers professed in the world today. It's all about plans, today's plans, tomorrow's plans, all surrounding business, job, career, money. And then he drops the bomb in verse 14. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You think you're going to live another year? You don't know that. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. That's pretty dramatic. No guarantee of a long life. Christians don't have that guarantee. If you believe that once you're saved, you're guaranteed a long life, wrong. A vapor. That's it. Well, what should we live with? What should we live for? Verse 15, of course. The Lord's will. It always goes back to the Lord's will. All right, so go back to 1 Peter 1. Peter might be saying this. You need to rejoice. Because your life is short. You're running out of time to find joy. You ever think that way as a Christian? You ever think about the fact that we're still struggling with the same things after all these decades of being saved? Doesn't it make you wonder as a believer? I'm still struggling with some of the same sin habits I had when I was younger and have been saved over 50 years. I wonder if I was 900 years old whether I'd still be battling the same things. He says, you just have a little while that you have to suffer trials. That's good news. It may be referring to the vapor of life. 
Get your act together. Have great joy. In the midst of suffering, your trials are small. Your life is just a vapor. That could be what he's saying. A little while could be referring to the shortness of our lives. But letter B is, I think, a greater potential. On the back side, up at the top, I think little life or little while can also be referring to the possibility of the duration of our trials and sufferings. Duration of each trial's suffering. Duration of suffering. And what is the duration? Well, to put it simply, under letter B, you can write it down. The duration of your trial in your life or your suffering is only for the time we can take it. A little while. That's the duration. Even now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed. A little while, just the duration of the trial. Well, how long am I supposed to take this trial? As long as God deems it for you to take it. He considers it a little while. The Spirit of God uses the phrase little while. Well, what if I have a trial my entire Christian life? That's a little while. Same Spirit is speaking here through Peter. Remember, God is calling your trial, potentially here, a little while. That's it. Does God know what he's saying? Is God a fool? Can God look at your life and mine and say no matter how long you think your trial is in your life, from God's perspective, it's a little while. Now, a little while might be a week, and that's a little while for us. It may be an entire lifetime. That's a little while for God. Let me repeat that. The trial may be a day or a week. That's a little while for us. Trial in your life, suffering may be your entire Christian life. That's a little while for God. Can anyone here or on Zoom define a little while from your perspective? Wouldn't it change for all of us? Isn't that arbitrary? What you can take for just a day, someone else may be able to take for a week or a month. What you can take and see as a little while just being a month, someone else may say as a Christian, a little while for me is a year. We'd all have a different opinion on what little while for a trial means. Wouldn't we right here in this room? Yeah. In fact, some of you might be at the end of your rope with a trial and you could say a little while is in the next 30 seconds this trial better end or I'm, I'm, I'm toast. A little while is 30 seconds for me. I remember I was whining to Bruce Porterfield years ago when he came in. That would have been in uh, 1996. How do I know that? Because he came in when I'd only been here nine years. And I was kind of whining. I remember it was right at the back steps. Bruce Porterfield was a suffering missionary who... Uh, minister to Aqua Indians, uh, New Tribes missionary, director, tough, tough nut. He'd seen it all and uh, suffered greatly. In New Tribes would go, and he did for, for decades with his wife, to areas of the world where there had been no Christian witness and really no law and order. So he said, uh, how long have you been here? And I was like, 
in my heart I was thinking, <laughs> I've been here nine years. I thought that was a long time. He thought it was a little while. Oh. He said something like, you're just getting your nose wet. I was like, it's all arbitrary. One can take their bad stuff at their job for years and another. It seems that there's not much endurance for pastors these days. When I first came into the pastorate, your average evangelical pastor lasted about five to ten years. Now it's like one to three years if you're lucky. And there's no such thing as luck, I know. Just a phrase. Seems like we're not lasting very long anymore. Got our little list. How long a trial should last. One pastor told me years ago, if uh, the church doesn't turn around in a year or two, I'm leaving. I said, have you turned around in a year or two? You know, one of the reasons I'm still here is I haven't turned around yet. What do I mean? I'm, I'm not succeeding the way I'd want to. i got to keep preaching to myself because I'm a mess. We act in the pulpit like we got our act together and everyone else is messed up. You're all train wrecks. I've got the act together. That's not true. That's a lie. So pastors who say, well, the church didn't turn around, so it's time to go somewhere else. Oh, so you got your act together. They didn't. They didn't conform, so out you go. You just left them high and dry. Sheriff left town, and the gang's coming in on horses. Nice. We're not supposed to leave till God tells us to leave. So you can say, well, John, you've been here 35 years. How long is that? Well, for me, that's a long time. How about for God? A little while. A little while. How do I know that? Because he still got me here. So if it's all arbitrary, this is my point, in case you've lost the point. If it's all arbitrary, you know, one trial for a month, a year, three weeks, just got to get through Friday, maybe to 2024. It's all arbitrary what you consider a little while. So how about resting in God's definition of little while? Let him handle it, because it's not arbitrary for him. He looks at our spiritual condition and our life path, and he determines what a little while is. Let him do it. Stop trying to cheat the process and help Jesus Christ along. He'll let it ride the pain, the suffering in your life, the nonsense, the whatever. He's going to let it ride. Just ride the wave. He knows when it'll end. He loves you. He'll never let you down. That's the key. Stop telling God it's too long. Stop telling God you don't understand. Stop telling God you can't take it anymore. What? God doesn't know? He's an old man on a throne up there and he doesn't, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that you can't take it any longer. I guess I wasn't looking your way for a few years and now I'm seeing you again. Others have distracted me, but now I'll get my sovereign act together. What blasphemy? That's right from the pit of hell. If you have suffering in your life and mine, he's meant it to be there for this little while. Yes. Exactly. You just read my mind. Yes. Exactly. That's exactly right. Compared to eternity. She read my exact next statement. Why is it a little while for us is a week? But a lifetime is too much for this trial. But for God, even a lifetime of trial is a little while. Because he's living on the other side. 
He exists in heaven and eternity. And he's looking at us and shaking our heads. You really don't understand whether young or old. This is such a little while compared to what you have. Timeless eternity in heaven. It's the same for unbelievers. You hear them, this is my hell on earth. Oh, you have no idea what hell is. Your hell on earth is a little bit of suffering in this life as an unbeliever. You're going to burn forever where there is no clock. There's no day, no night, no reprieve. Can't even commit suicide in hell. People have no idea what they say. So Sue's correct. A little while is God sovereignly comparing to eternity. This brings us to this issue of what can I take or not take in your note sheet. 1 Corinthians 10. And I'll just kind of graze the grass like a cow before we walk out of here. 1 Corinthians 10.13. This is a tough passage. So I'll let you in on this. I've taught 1 Corinthians 10.13 uh, multiple times throughout my pastoral career. I actually did a search back through the four or five times I've taught 1 Corinthians 10.13. The last time was like, wow, could have been five to ten years ago. In-depth taught verse 13. I was looking back at some of my notes and I was like this. Oh my goodness, I taught that. Um, seemed to start to get an idea of this about five, ten years ago, my last time, but uh, this one takes a little bit of thought and study. Verse 13, No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. You cannot grasp meaning of this verse by just a brush across it. Okay? You've got to check context out. And he's talking about some really bad things in this context. He goes back and he basically calls them ignorant fools in verse 10, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10. The Corinthians, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Whenever Paul says you're unaware, uh, that's not a good thing. He's not being nice. He's being helpful, but he's not being nice. This is after his own testimony at the end of chapter 9 where he's talking about his own personal battle against sin and how he has to discipline his body. When he talks about disciplining his body in chapter 9, verse 27, he's not talking about marathons, weightlifting, and aerobics. He's talking about the bodily desires, obviously. So he's talking about his own discipline over bodily desires and sins. He had them too. And then he slams into this issue of lust. In chapter 10, verse 2, he goes in verse 1, Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. He's talking about all the professed believers in Moses' day, but not all of them were saved. All drank the same spiritual drink. Verse 4, they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, verse 5, you think just because a person is saved that God is pleased with them? Not on your life. With most of them. Most of them. See, this is the problem we face today. I have been told so many times by people outside this church. You're so negative and down on the body of Christ. How could you say that you think that most people are not saved in the body of Christ? Well, Matthew 7, it says that. Many are called, few are chosen. 
And here, Paul's saying the same thing about the Israelites. Most of them, God was not well pleased. They were laid low in the wilderness. The majority of God's professed believers just never really follow Christ. This is the way it's wired. It was true for Israel. It's true for the church. You can say, I don't understand this if we all have the Spirit. Well, we don't all have the Spirit. We learned that this morning. Not everyone who claims to be a believer is a believer. In fact, most aren't. And he gets to the root of the issue in verse 6. Now, these things happen as an example for us. We should learn from the failure of the Israelites. We don't. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. What's that? Lust. What do we do? We lust. We lust after evil things. Just like them. We don't learn. So I don't lust. If you say you don't lust, you're not a human being. Because the very nature, the essence of your sin nature, whether saved or unsaved, is lust, according to Ephesians 4. Craving evil things is another way to define lust. They were idolaters, though. They were more than just lusting. We all do that, but we can still be growing by repenting and, and separating from our evil desires. But in verse 7, they were idolaters. Do not be idolaters, as some of them. So if God's people had idolatry among it, we know that they do today. We do today in the church. See, look, they were just into partying. They sat down to eat and play, to drink and sit up to play. Playing is a euphemism for fornication and adultery. They are into the base desire. See, that's what he's talking about. Go back to chapter 9, verse 27. I discipline my body. What is he disciplining? His bodily desires. The two major ones are mentioned in chapter, seven, chapter 10, verse 7. Eat, drink, sex. Food and sex. Those are your two bodily desires. Guess where we battle? <laughs> Anyone want to guess what two bodily desires we war against with our flesh? Gluttony, I'm glad nobody said food. Food isn't a sin. Gluttony and sexual sin. There they are in verse 7. Let us act not immorally, verse 8, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. There are a lot of unbelievers in that group. Let us not try the Lord, verse 9. Let us not grumble, verse 10. These things happen as an example, verse 11. He says it again. If you think you can handle gluttony and sexual lust, gluttony is lust for food, sexual lust, that's self-evident. Look at verse 12. You think you stand? Think you can handle those driving forces within these bodies? Paul had to discipline himself in chapter 9, verse 27. And this is the context of verse 13. A war, an all-out war against our bodily desires. So no temptation has overtaken you. My temptation in cross is my boss. No, that's not the context. We're talking about suffering, warring against the flesh. Suffering because of others who are failing with the flesh and antagonize us. Suffering from unbelievers who are given over to the flesh. Suffering from Satan who attacks us. In the area of the flesh. You can't just swipe verse 13 with your hand. I got it figured out. I just have to put up with my boss or my car or my neighbors a little while. and God won't let it get any worse. He'll make it all go away. That's not what verse 13 is saying at all. Okay. So next Sunday night... Two Sunday nights, I should say, because somebody was just ready to remind me I'm not going to be here. Two Sunday nights. 
We're going to dive into verse 13 now that we know the context, and we're going to realize that suffering, the greatest, occurs in your war against your bodily desires to sin. That's where your greatest suffering is in this life. Greatest. And if God can get a handle on that for us and help us with that, anything else is a cakewalk for him, isn't he? Okay? Just say, I, I just, I really battle in those two areas, food and sex. This is a real problem. Hey, join the club. Because we all have the same sin nature, right? And Paul just defined it, right? Eat and drink and got up to play. Food and sex, food and sex. There are other lusts, but those are the major ones. There's six lusts in the New Testament. Food, gluttony, lust, sex, lust, power, lust, narcissistic self-worship, lust, career, lust, money, lust. Those, those cover almost every aspect of sin you can commit of those six lusts. That's suffering. So what we learn is, if I can have the Lord willing to help me in these major areas of temptation in my own life, I can rejoice greatly. He's controlling all the lesser things because there's nothing you're facing tomorrow, dear believer, that's as frighteningly dangerous to you as your own good-for-nothing, rotten, low-down, dirty sin nature. That's what will take us all down if we let it. That's what shipwrecks us if we let it. And we love our sin while we hate it. Oh, yeah, we do. We could laugh and cooter. He was just a souse for four years. We avoid suffering at all costs. We don't even want to repent of our lusts because we just would rather ignore them. They'll go away. Cooter's not the moron we are. Worried about your life path? confused about suffering in your life. God's not talking to you. He's talked to you. He's talked to you tonight from the Word. And he's talking to you in 1 Corinthians 10. And he's warning us. You better not worry about your circumstances of life. God controls those completely. Psalm 37 says of every believer, the steps of a righteous one are ordained by the Lord. So whether you think it's insane or not, your steps are all ordained by the Lord. You can rest in him that a loving God will never leave you or forsake you. But you had better start fearing and trembling, Philippians 2, over what your nasty sin nature and mind can do to us. Can wreck us. Thoroughly and completely shipwreck us. And the Bible is full of examples of that. From Moses, who blew it with anger and rage, trying to get water for the people, to David with Bathsheba, to the shipwreck of disciples and apostles in 2 Timothy 2. And the wreckage all in between. Better men and women than you and I, this is what we should fear. And this is what we'll rejoice in eternity for. The godly Christian is not looking forward to bad bosses gone, bad neighborhoods gone. The godly Christian is looking forward to sin nature finally is no longer raging in my mind. No more ever again single temptation. No trial or suffering. No failure in the area of lusts. Hmm. Forever and ever not one discouraging, confusing, sinful, lustful temptation or thought, completely freed from the bondage of sin.
Everything else? Just a little while. Easy to preach. Hard, very hard. Impossible to live without God. You're looking at me, Lord, so to speak. You live with inside my mind, and I would imagine you're shaking your head. Well, that's, that's easy to preach, John, from cooter to Christian trials. That's, you form that one pretty good. What about your own battles, John? Miserable. I have no defense. Born in sin will die in sin. Not like the Bible says that unbelievers die in their sins. I'm talking about physically we die as sinners. We're born as sinners and we die as sinners. It starts so early, Lord. The lust for food and wickedness and power. Even in babies. Throw a tantrum when they don't get their food. All the way to our older years of bitterness and retirement. Cynicism. Mockery of the things of God if we allow it. This is impossible, Lord. I admit it to you. As a pastor teacher for all these 35 years, just a little while. This is impossible. Can't do this in my power. Couldn't save myself, can't sanctify myself. Help. I'm an invalid who's just been mugged on the sidewalk. I've, been my, I've had my legs smashed by a mugger. Robbed me, stripped me of everything valuable. I'm lying in pain on the sidewalk. No one there to help me. And all I can do after being mugged and crippled on the sidewalk outside is cry for help. That is forever our Christian lives, Lord. Our spiritual invalids, please, please help us. Empower us to rejoice greatly in the face of suffering. We admit we're nothing. We admit we have no power. We admit that life is so odd and confusing. We don't have to know. We don't need all the answers. You have them all. Please take our hands and guide us to the green pastures of super joy in the battlefield of life. And forgive us, God, this week if we cooter brown it. Do anything and everything to distract us from our suffering. What fools. We have the resident spirit of truth within us to empower us for victory. If we would just trust your love that when your child is mugged in the sufferings of life and crippled by battles with sin, you will bend down and help us up. And we know this because you died for us.
In Jesus' name, amen.